0: Great to see all of you. Hope you're having a lovely weekend. As Melissa said, my name is Brad Zook. I'm the, I'm the high school director here at Brookside. Not up here preaching all that often, but it's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. If you're a guest, just want to say again, we're so, so um, just excited you're here. We want you to feel welcomed here. So if you've never been here before, um, thanks for being here. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday with us. Uh, again, as Melissa said, this is week three in the series we're in called Portraits of Faith. And so this series has been covering three books of the Old Testament. We finished up the Torah just a few weeks ago, and so Joshua, Judges, and today Ruth. And uh, so I'm excited to dive into this book. Um, if you're just joining us as a guest today, we've we've maybe referenced this 365. I don't know if Rob said anything about it. But so we're on a journey together this ch- this year as a church, a unique journey, reading through the Bible in a year, and what we're calling our 365 challenge. And it, of course, I love what, how Steve says it's not just reading through the Bible. Uh, in a year, say in a matter of months, but it's trying to read through the Bible every day so that we have part of scripture coming into our lives, coming into our hearts every day. And so if you've been doing the reading this week, you've just finished the book of Judges yesterday, such an interesting book. And so today uh, the reading is the entire book of Ruth. And so I think this is, this is super cool for me. I think this is the first time this has happened, that the sermon you're hearing this morning is on the same passage that you're to read for today. So maybe you've already read this morning and you know this book, you could come up here and preach this sermon or maybe you haven't, and so I will hopefully whet your appetite. And then again, as Rob said, uh, this is also Palm Sunday. Uh, there's a donkey out front, I believe. I missed it, but there's a donkey out front because that's what Jesus wrote into town. This week is Holy Week. And so here's what's cool. If you're doing the 365 reading, this week, for one week, we jump to the New Testament, and we're reading the, the Gospel of Mark. And so we read the whole Gospel this week as it prepares us for Easter, and so that'll be fun. Don't forget, Good Friday service is Friday, 630, right here. So the story of Ruth, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want to invite you to pull that out, open it up to the book of Ruth. I'm going to be sort of taking you through the story, sort of summarizing it, but I'd love to have you track along with me. And so what we find in the book of, sto- in the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, is a wonderful love story, wonderful love story, and yet at times, uh, at the beginning, it's quite sad. This tragic situation sort of sets up the whole scenario. This tragedy. Uh, you know, produces a problem, this great tension sort of builds, what's going to happen, and then eventually, of course, it's resolved. But this story is, of course, it's a true story. It's in the Bible. We see at the end, and I'm going to get to that in a matter of minutes, but uh, it's a true story. This is absolutely phenomenal. And we sort of go, why is this book in the Bible? And so before I summarize the story today, I want you to see, notice this, two quick observations. The book ends with the word David it closes by mentioning David. Who is this David? It is King David, of course. But the whole book ends, I'm giving something away here, but a child is born, and it says this, he, this child, was the father uh, of Jesse, the father of David, King David, David who fought Goliath. And so what we see here, this is absolutely incredible, uh, you go to Matthew 1, you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you see that Ruth is in there. Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. This Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. And so in chapter 1, you see Ruth mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. She's not an Israelite at all, and yet she's there. In in these ancient uh, genealogies, you always see this father-to-son thing. Jesus' genealogy has women in it. In fact, there's a second uh, observation, a second woman. We're introduced in this story to a man named Boaz. And uh, I'll get back to him, but Boaz, get this, is the son of Rahab the prostitute... Who we were introduced to in joshua chapter 2 if you're reading the 365 you just read through uh, joshua and judges rahab the prostitute who gives aid to these spies who come in as they spy out the city of jericho in joshua 2 and joshua 6 matthew 1 5 tells us explicitly uh, boaz's mother is this rahab and so we have numerous women mentioned but this is i just find this so interesting rahab and ruth aren't even israelites they're outsiders they're foreigners and yet, God uses them in a mighty way to eventually bring about the birth of our Messiah. But so in the story of Ruth, we have four chapters. And so I have to give you sort of a bird's eye view this morning, sort of the, the 30,000 foot uh, view. And so first, I'm going to give you a summary of the story. And then I'm going to give you two really important takeaways and applications this morning. So here's how the story goes. There's a few sections. And the first section we see is this, the emptiness of Naomi. The emptiness of Naomi. So at the very beginning of the story, we're introduced to a couple. It so says there's a man named Elimelech and his wife. He had a wife named Naomi. And they had left Israel. They were Israelites. And they had gone to Moab, to a neighboring country. It wasn't, it wasn't part of Israel. wasn't a tribe of Israel. A neighboring country during a famine. And it says there that they raised two sons. So their names are, are Malon and Kilion. And uh, we're not sure what happened. They raised two sons. These two sons marry two Moabite women. And then disaster strikes. Naomi's husband dies. And soon after, both of her sons died. We're not told why. But this tragedy strikes. And so Naomi is widowed, as are her two daughters-in-law. And this creates this tragic situation for them. Because, see, think about this. Back then, your family was everything. It was absolutely everything. It was, it was your, your well. it was how you made a living, it was everything to you. You were socially strong, you were economically strong, if you had a large family. And so to be a widow back then made you extremely vulnerable in that day and age. It's really different for us, right? Today, family's important, family's a, a priority. But what gives us self-worth and self-respect? For us, in the 21st century, it's more of our individual accomplishments. Sure, if something tragic happens in our family, Uh, that's sad, it's tragic, but where do we get our status from? Today, uh, it's found in your education. It's found in your marketable talents or skills. It's found in your resume, right? It's found in how much money you can make. But back then, it was completely different. It was 100% your family. What you needed back then was not an education. What you needed was not even money. What you needed was a spouse and children, and preferably lots of children to be well off. Now, Naomi was particularly vulnerable as a widow for a couple of reasons. We see in chapter 1, verse 12, she was getting older, which meant she couldn't go back to her family of origin for her parents to take care of her. She couldn't go back to her birth family. Secondly, she doesn't have the prospects of building a new family. She's past the age of having more children, so she can't do that. And then thirdly, she she doesn't have adult children any longer either. Both of her sons had died, and so her, uh, her children don't have families that can support her. So, this was absolutely terrible for Naomi. In fact, I think it's so hard to get across, for us to get across this idea. um, You know, for us, again, this would be tragic, but how does this work? Most of the time, we get our self worth and our self identity somewhere, right? And usually, our culture tells us where you should get your worth, your self image, your self respect. Our culture tells us what makes us worthy. Or worthless. So just to press this in a little, I want to ask you the question, in our day, what makes you feel empty? What gets you, what makes you discouraged or depressed? What makes, what does our culture say makes us feel worthless? Maybe if you're single, and again, our culture sort of says that's not a big deal anymore, but maybe still for you personally, you go, I, that, if anything makes me feel empty, it's because I'm single? Maybe you're overweight, maybe you just don't like your appearance, you don't feel pretty enough, you're not athletic enough. You're not in shape enough. Maybe for you students, you don't, you're not as smart or as popular as other students in your class. Uh, maybe your body, certain parts of you just aren't working properly anymore. And that's frustrating to you. Your eyesight's going. You can't hear as well. You're not able to do what you once could. Or your life's just not where you thought it would be by now. You know, you're 30, you're 35. Life just looks different than you ever thought it would. It's so mundane. Maybe you'd say, my life is so ordinary. And so you feel empty, like Naomi. And what I'm saying is, we all feel this at times, don't we? Again, culturally, there's differences, but we feel this. We do. This is a big deal. And it was a big deal to Naomi. She has no name, right? Her family line ha- was dying out. She had nobody. She had nothing. And so when she hears again that there's food in the land of Israel, She goes back. She goes back to Bethlehem. That's where her husband was from, and so she goes back to live as a widow, to try to make a living as a widow. She goes back so she can survive, and so at one place, at the end of chapter 1 even, she does a play on her own name. Look at verse 20, chapter 1 verse 20. Very, very sad. She does a play on her own name. She comes back to Bethlehem, and some of her old friends, the women in the town, see her and even exclaim, end of verse 19, can this be Naomi? Naomi? But she says this, very sad. She says, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And the Hebrew word for her name Naomi meant pleasant. So she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, because that's what I am. I was full but the Lord has brought me back empty. She even says, she sort of blames God. She says, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So she says, I'm empty. I'm bitter. I have nothing. So that's, that's sort of the first character we're introduced to. That's the emptiness of Naomi. Now secondly, we see this, the courage of Ruth. So Naomi looks at her daughters-in-law. Her two daughter, daughters-in-law are Orpah and Ruth. And in verse 8, it says she, she tells them, go back go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Why does she tell him that? See, these two gals, at least, they're widows too, but at least they're young widows. They're not like Naomi. And so they can go back to their parents. They can go back to their own families. Their parents can take care of them. If they go back to their own country, they might have a good chance of finding another man, another husband, and starting a new family. But we would also be right to assume if we start to dig into this a little bit, it would be worse for them, actually, if they came back with Naomi to the land of Judah, to Bethlehem. Because remember, both of these daughters-in-law were Moabites. They were foreigners. There was extreme tension between Israel and Moab. They would have been outsiders in the land of Israel. They would not have been treated well if they came back with Naomi to her land. Notice verse 1 of the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, here's the context in the days when the judges ruled. That's when this famine occurred. So if you just finish the book of Judges, it's a very up and down time for Israel. They had just recently, uh, God had given them the land of Canaan. They had sort of been allotted parts of that land. But if you remember at the beginning of of Judges, even then, they they don't wipe out all the Canaanites. Some of the people are still there living. They're slaves, they're servants. So if you were an immigrant, if you were an outsider, you would not have been treated well. So she says, go back. Now notice this. As I read this, there's a couple of chilling statements in the middle of the book. That The first couple of times I read this this last week, I didn't uh, maybe even realize what was going on. At one point, Ruth is in the fields of Boaz. We'll get back to this guy in a second. But she's gleaning in the fields, and Boaz says to her, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the women. He says this, I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And then later on in the chapter, verse 22, Naomi says to Ruth, she said, it's good for you to go with the women who work for Boaz because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. You're like, what is going on with these warnings? What, why, would, why would they be harmed? Again, Naomi knows that if Ruth and Orpah come back with her to Israel, they will not just be widows. They will not just be foreigners. It was worse than that. There was, again, this enormous tension between Israel and all the other countries surrounding them. Naomi knows, Boaz says outright, that if they're in Israel as Moabites, they will not be treated well. They will likely be the objects of violence. They may be beaten. They maybe would even be raped or killed. Boaz says, look, I'm going to have to order my men not to touch you. So stay, you know, stay in my field. Stay with my ladies. But back to, so Naomi says, go back. You don't want to be here. You would be an outsider. Go back home to Moab. And so eventually, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she goes home. But Ruth refuses to leave. Verse 14 says she clung to her mother-in-law. And Ruth, in this amazing statement, says this, verse 16. This is incredible. Where you go, she says to Naomi, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth says, I am binding myself to you today, Naomi. Come what may, I am with you. Till death do us part. These are almost like wedding vows, are they not? Almost like she's saying, till death do us part, I am with you. Until even death separates me and you. Wow. Now, if you're married out there, would any of you say this to your mother-in-law? I mean, put that back up on the screens. Where, Where you go, I will go really i mean some of you would you say this to your mother-in-law that is that is wild right but she goes who else do i have so i will now think about this every act of immigration takes courage doesn't it maybe you're here today maybe you're an immigrant maybe you're the child of an immigrant maybe you're the grandchild of immigrants any act of immigration would have to be scary right going to a totally new land Maybe you have grandparents that came over from Europe, great-grandparents from Germany, wherever, Scandinavia. Why do you go? You always go in the hopes of a better life, right? That's the reason you would go, in the hopes of a better life. Think of the current refugee crisis right now. Refugees are just pouring into Europe. Why are they going to live in these just huts, all kinds of, like, what for a better life? Wherever they're at now, it's actually better than what they were coming from. And yet, here's what we have. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I will stick with you no matter what. I will be an immigrant in a foreign land. But she knows, she has to know, this will not be a better life. This, almost for certain, will be a worse life. She could be harmed. She could be killed. But she goes. So she goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi. They come back just as the harvest is beginning. And Ruth knows, Naomi has no hope if I'm not with her. So she helps them survive by gleaning in the fields. Now, again, the poor were allowed to do this. I mentioned this earlier briefly. If you remember reading back in the Torah, in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, the Israelites were commanded not to harvest, right? All the way to the edges of their fields. Why? For the sake of the poor. The poor needed to to survive somehow, and so they weren't to harvest everything, and so Ruth goes to glean in the field, which leads us to the third part of the story, the generosity of Boaz. So who's this guy, Boaz? Ruth goes out, enters a field, and chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that she finds that she's in a field belonging to this man, Boaz. Now, Boaz was a man who, when she, hear, when she heard who Ruth was, she found out that she had come back with Naomi from Moab to support her mother-in-law. He, he deals very favorably with her. He shows her great kindness. For whatever reason, he's amazed that she would be willing to risk her life to come and be an outsider for the love of her mother-in-law. And she's amazed that any Israelite man would be so kindly to her, a racially marginalized woman, an outsider like herself, which she explicitly says in chapter 2, verse 10. So she bowed down with her face to the ground. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner, she says. And when she goes home, Naomi says, Oh, my word, do you realize what has happened here, Ruth? You just happened to enter the fields of Boaz, who's one of the few people left alive who could be my kinsman redeemer, or my guardian redeemer. Now, what is, what is this? The whole rest of the story sort of turns a corner based on that. Chapter 2, verse 20. He, he's a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. What's a guardian redeemer? Well, here's what it is. In Israelite law, this is interesting, a guardian redeemer is someone who had the right to buy back the ancestral land Of any Israelite who had lost it, any family that had lost it. See, when Israel first came back to the land, you read this at the beginning of Judges. um, I'm sorry, at the beginning of Joshua. No, no, beginning of Judges. They start allotting the land of Canaan out to all these tribes, to the clans, to the families. So every family had land. They had an original ancestral plot of land. And if they lost it, they had lost it. If they had sold it, if they needed to sell their land for some reason, Naomi had lost her land. They most likely had sold it when they moved, uh, when they went to Moab to get away from this famine. Everything was gone, right? But a guardian redeemer was someone who, if that person were willing to be generous with their own money, that person had the right to buy back the ancestral land for the family. And the person who owned it had to sell it to them whether they wanted to or not. It's just the way it was set up. The problem in this situation was this. Anybody who is Naomi's guardian redeemer in order to get the land back, also had to reestablish the family line, the tie to the land. So they couldn't just buy the land back. That would be generous enough if they'd be willing to do that. But he'd have to marry Ruth, wherever this person was. She was the only person, she was this outsider, yes, but she was the only tie back to Naomi, the only living wife of her son. And so this person would have to marry a Moabite woman. It would be the only way to do it. So Naomi says, wow, this Boaz, he's one of the few people left on the earth that could be our our redeemer, who could do this, who'd have the right to do it. But why would he? First of all, why would he be that generous to us with his money? But then why would he marry an immigrant, this outsider, foreign woman? But Ruth, get this, in an enormously bold act, and at the prompting of his mother-in-law, actually, who knew this was risky, her mother-in-law, Ruth goes to Boaz in the middle of the night, sits at his feet, and when he wakes up, she proposes marriage. She sort of startles him. He's like, who who are you? She says, I'm Naomi, and she proposes marriage. She wakes up, and she says, I want you to be the guardian redeemer for Naomi and I. I want you to rescue us. I want you to buy back the land. She literally says, "I I want you to spread the corner of your garment over me, which was a way of saying, marry me. Be my redeemer, now, isn't that wild? In the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have a passage where a woman proposes to a man in the middle of the night. It goes to where she's, where he's sleeping. That's so fascinating. But so in this great, the great dramatic point here is Boaz says, like, takes up the challenge. In fact, the the I'm going to give away the whole like plot twist. He's not the first guy in line. So he essentially says, uh, "Yes, but there's actually somebody." Who's more closely related to you than I am, and so um, I have to talk to him first. But so Boaz challenges this other person in the whole matter, and in the end, he marries Ruth. He does it. He goes and he marries Ruth, and he does act as the kinsman, the guardian, redeemer. And in the end, we see that not only is Naomi's land restored, and she is given a much better life, but because of the courage and the courageous love of Ruth, It melts Boaz's heart. Naomi and Ruth are both spliced into the line of King David. They don't realize that at the time. They're spliced into the line of King David and later to Jesus Christ himself. And it happens because Ruth, a young woman, an outsider, an immigrant, a widow, has the courage to stay with her mother-in-law. And look at what God does. This is absolutely an amazing story. In fact, at the, at the middle of chapter 4, they get married, and the elders at the city gate, Boaz is there, Ruth is likely there with, with him, and they say to him, may you have standing and be famous in Bethlehem. And here we are, probably 3,000 years after the story happened. And what are we doing? We're looking at their story, right? I think they might be famous, you could say. So this is a great story, but what are we supposed to learn from a story like this? Okay two very important ways to apply this story practically. And the first lesson is this. Number one, this story reminds us of the absolute life-changing power of friendship. The life-changing power of friendship. We see this lived out in an incredible way between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Now, isn't friendship the most powerful thing on earth? There is nothing more powerful than a deep, lasting, committed friend. Something happens at the beginning of this story between Naomi and Ruth, and it happens because a friendship is forged. I'm, I'm I'm sure of it. What happened is this: It's very apparent that Ruth, at some point, is converted to the God of Israel because of this friendship with Naomi, because of an an ongoing friendship. It's very apparent right at the beginning of the story that Naomi and her husband are Israelites, so they worshipped the Israelite God. They worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And it's also very apparent that both daughter-in-laws don't know the Lord, the God of Israel. They worship their own gods. They were Moabites. They had their own gods. They worshiped Chemosh or Molech. They had their own gods. Every nation back then, it was very polytheistic, worshipped their own gods. And yet, Naomi goes and says, uh, even says, look at verse 15, says to Ruth, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And what does Ruth say? At some point along the way, because of this this act of love, the fact that Naomi was trying to send them back, I'll unpack that in a minute, she says, I don't want my gods anymore. Remember, she says, I want your God to be my God. Where you go, I will go. I want your God to be my God. And then notice this in verse 17. She doesn't just say God, the Hebrew word there, Elohim. Verse 17, she takes on the covenant name, the, the specific name, the name Yahweh. She says, May the Lord. You know, anytime you see the word Lord in small caps in the Bible, it's referring to the specific name of the, old te- of the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, Yahweh or Jehovah. Ruth says, May the Lord deal with me. At some point, she says, I, She uses the covenant name of the God of Israel. She says, I want your God, Naomi. I'm giving up my own gods. I want your God. Why would she do that? And here's why. Because of friendship, because of the unbelievable love of Naomi, Ruth begins to see that the only reason, I mean the only reason, that Naomi would urge these two ladies to go back home to Moab is because Naomi has their best interest in mind, not her own. The only reason she would send them back is because she knows that the best possible life awaits them back at home, because they they could be harmed, as we already looked at, if they come to the land of Israel. She's sending them back to their home out of self-sacrificial love. In fact, at the beginning, verse 8, she even prays a blessing over them in the name of Yahweh. If you're going to be blessed, my God's going to have to bless you. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and me. And that, radically, it melts Ruth's heart, and that's what converts her. Sincere, self-sacrificial friendship. But I want to drive this point home just a little bit more. This is so important for us today. What strikes Ruth is this, that Naomi loves them even when they don't believe, Orpah and Ruth, even when they don't believe as she believes. She is sacrificing for them even though they believe in other gods entirely. Ruth says, the reason, here's the reason I would believe in this kind of God. The reason I would believe in this kind of exclusive God, she probably picked this, picked this up somewhere, right? The Ten Commandments, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? You go to Deuteronomy 20, Exodus 5. Have no other gods before me. This very polytheistic uh, culture at the time, and this God of Israel delivers the Israelites from Egypt and says, have no other gods before me. Second commandment, don't even, don't, don't have any carved images, don't worship idols, I'm an exclusive God. Ruth says, the reason I want to believe in this kind of exclusive God is due to the radically inclusive love he puts into the hearts of his followers, apparently. She says, I've never seen anybody love me the way you love me. You're putting my needs way above your own, even though you desperately want me to be with you. If you go back by yourself, your life is over. What is this telling us? This tells us this. Here's sort of, it is, this is it in a nutshell. If you love people in deep friendships, regardless of what they believe, then what you believe is going to begin to look pretty credible to them. And if, on the other hand, you love people only and only if they believe what you believe, or only if it looks like they're on their way to believing what you believe, then what you believe will probably not look very credible to them. Why should it? If you want to see God transform lives, what will do that radical, loving, self-sacrificing friendship? Let me ask you, how do you treat people who differ from you? How do you treat people who look different from you? This is a question to me, too. How do, you look pe- how do you treat people who act differently than you do? And if you know them well, do you treat them differently because they believe differently than you? The reason that Ruth has the kindness and the courage she does is because she has received from Naomi a tremendous showing of kindness and courage. You want to see your friends' lives changed? Give them grace. Give them grace because that's what friends give each other. That's what we need, right? The reason she goes back is because she's been changed by the friendship with Naomi. You know, almost everyone I know who I've seen come to faith in Jesus Christ, some way or another, it's due to a relationship, it's due to a friendship. It's not through sermons, it's not through programs, it's not through services, it's very often not even through books. Those things are good. They have their place. I hope I'm up here right now. I hope sermons, you know, do something. But that's not, that's not what I've seen. They can help a person work through things. You know what does it? Deep, lasting friendship. That's what everyone in this world needs. They need to experience the deep, radical, unconditional love of another person and ideally of Jesus Christ. So where do we begin with friendship like this? Say, where do I start, Brad? Forming this kind of friends. Two things. We see them both in Ruth's statement in verses 16 and 17. Number one, time. It takes time. Ruth says this, where you go, I will go, Naomi, and where you stay, I will stay. It takes time. And secondly, it takes commitment. Because again, she essentially says, till death do us part. Where you die, I will die. Till death do us part. And so if you want a true, lasting, deep friendship, it takes both of these. If you give time to someone, but you're not utterly committed to them, if it's not apparent that you love them, Or, if you say you love someone and that you're committed to them, but you never spend time with them, you don't have a friendship. It takes both, time, commitment, unconditional love. So that's the first takeaway, the transforming power of friendship. Secondly, this story reminds us of the signs of hope, even in ordinary life. The signs of hope, even in the most mundane and ordinary life. See, we've got to remember that even in the most Mundane of circumstances, God is working behind the scenes. When you think God's quiet in your life, when He's not answering your prayers, God is working in 10,000 ways behind the scenes for His glory and your good. You must never lose hope. Even when He appears to be absent, God is still there. That's the second big lesson we learn here. So, one of the interesting things about the book of Ruth, so I'm studying it this week, is this put it up against any other story in the Bible, basically. Put it up against Jonah put it up against the story of the Exodus, the Battle of Jericho, or most other stories in the Bible, you'll find something uh, interesting immediately. In the book of Ruth, nothing supernatural is happening. There's no miracles. There's no dreams or visions from the Lord. God, there's nothing miraculous whatsoever. There's no intervention on the part of God. See, this is a book for people who look around their life and see absolutely no dramatic answers to prayer, no dramatic events of any kind, This is a book for people who feel perhaps that maybe God has abandoned me. I don't know where God is. I'm reaching out to him. And my circumstances are not getting better. God is quiet. My life is boring. My life is is mundane. It's the routine, week in, week out, daily grind. It's just plain hard. Isn't that how so many of us feel today? But see, we need to learn the signs of hope that God has hidden below the surface. So what do we look at? Notice this, when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, she says I'm empty, right? I'm bitter. I have nothing. And right next to her as she walks back back into Bethlehem, who's with her? Ruth, right? Ruth. Here's Ruth, this tremendous this tremendous treasure of a friend that God has put in her life and Naomi's saying, I went away full, but I came back empty. I have nothing. Even the women in the town, right? Have to be going, well if you're so empty, who's she? And maybe even Ruth herself is like, what am I, chopped liver? What do you mean you came back empty? I'm here for you. I came back with you. Do you see that the, here's the lesson here. Naomi has an agenda for what she thinks God should do in her life. And because God's agenda is not her agenda, she's mad. She can't see the signs of hope that God's put in her life. She's blinded to it. Because she wants control, right? Some of us, some of you Sometimes I am in the very same place, right? You have an agenda. Things aren't going your way. And so you blame God. We're blinded to the incredible things that God has put in our life, or the incredible things, or the incredible people that God has kept in your life. This book is teaching us that it's in the mundane things, it's in the ordinary things of life. That is where God is working. He's always there. 10,000 things for his glory and your good. We just don't see it. Ruth just happened to glean in the fields of Boaz. She just happened to find the one guy whom she had to marry in order for the Messiah to be born into the world. Just happened? Are you kidding me? Just happened? Here's Naomi saying, I have nothing. And yet Ruth is clinging to her. And in Ruth clinging to her, God is clinging to her. God is clinging to her. And he's clinging to you if you believe in him. He will never let you go. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Do you get this lesson? Do you see the signs of hope that God has put in your life? Now, maybe you're saying this morning, you're saying, sounds great, Brad, and I get it. It's great. It's easy for you to say that, though. I'm having trouble with this. And I'd say, if you're having trouble with this, maybe you need a Ruth or whatever the male equivalent is of a Ruth. Maybe you don't need a Ruth, you need a Ryan or something. You need a Ruth, right? You need somebody else. Ruth is this younger woman. She has all kinds of hope. She might be scared for her life. She's coming into Israel. But she's with her. She's with Naomi. Or maybe you're a Naomi. I'm sorry, maybe you're a Ruth and you need to find a Naomi to encourage. Or an older man. But either way, the point is this. If you're struggling without hope in the mundane things of life, you'll never be able to handle it without community. You just won't. That's why so, so much We push small groups here at Brookside. Men's groups, women's groups, you got to be in community. You're struggling with something. You have this major sin problem, you've got to be in community. Join a community group. Join a gender group. Find an accountability partner. Find a mentor. Go to one of your best friends and just say, can we meet monthly and have coffee and at least, can we have intentional relationships and not just shoot the breeze, not just talk about sports? Can we talk about the real things of life? Because my life is mundane. You need a Ruth. Even when God seems absent, he's working. He's there with you. He's clinging to you. But many times we won't see that without community. But now finally to close, we go, okay, that's good too. The transforming power of friendship, that's great. I get that. I need, I need a friend. God's working signs of hope in the mundane, I get that too. But at some point, Brad, I'm not going to have that. The friend's not going to be there when I need him to. My life's going to feel so ordinary. I'm going to fail at this. At some point, something might just happen in my life. It's going to wreck me. And what then? See, here's the million-dollar question. Why is Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus? The story of Ruth is not simply go be like Ruth. Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus. And what does that mean? Ruth points to the one who comes out of her, who comes after her, to her greater descendant, right? Right? do you realize when Ruth looked at Naomi, she says to herself, if I keep my life and go back to Moab, Naomi will likely lose her life. And so I'm going to give my life away so that Naomi can still have one. I'm going to take her poverty on myself so that she, through my poverty, might become rich. I'm going to be put on the margins. I'm going to become an outsider for her sake. And that's what happened, right? Ruth left her father's house she left her own country. She came into a new land that she did not know. She became a foreigner, an outsider. She became despised, a suffering servant. And she remind you of anyone. See, Ruth did what she did because of an act of self-sacrificial love on the part of Naomi. And so we can have the courage of Ruth because of an act of self-sacrificial love on the part of the one to whom Ruth points us. Let me put it this way. Ruth went out at the risk of her life To save her mother-in-law, right? To glean in the fields as an outsider. Jesus came not at the risk of his life, but at the complete and total cost of his life. Knowing he was going to die, expecting to suffer and die, to pay the price that your sins and my sins deserve to save us, right? Hosanna, to give us salvation. You know, we talk about that like it's, yes, it's sweet. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's sweet, it's sentimental, it's inspiring. Here's what we sometimes forget Romans 6.23, but the wages of sin is death. The wages of my sin is death. There's a penalty for sin, and it's death. So Jesus didn't just come to be this great sentimental act. He came for you. He came for your sin, because that's a problem, and he came for my sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, because he paid our death penalty for us, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we say hallelujah, hallelujah. Hosanna, God. Save us today. Let's pray. Jesus, we read a story like this. Lord, so often we feel our lives are very ordinary, much like Ruth. But Lord, just like Ruth, you became poor so that we, Jesus, through your poverty might become rich. That you took on our spiritual poverty and gave up the riches of heaven so that we could have the riches of heaven so that we might become rich. God, why would you do that? So Lord, may we glory in you today on this Palm Sunday. God, thank you for your self-sacrificial love for us when we didn't deserve it. And God, may we extend that love to others, even those who don't believe as we believe. God, help us to be that kind of people in our city, in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name.